Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome! We're already up to episode 8 of the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby and today we're looking at influencing the speed of money. Uh, we all measure our wealth, of course, by how much money we have. But the contribution money makes to the economy is dependent not just on how much money there is, but how quickly it moves around. A very conventional theory of economics. Basically, if you don't spend it, if you just sit on it, then a fat lot of good it does anyone. Except, of course, making you feel happier about yourself. So is that part of the problem we've got today? We're just hanging on to our money. Is that why economies are not quite as buoyant as they might be? If, if we got somehow, got everyone to spend, would we have a better economy? Uh, Steve Keen is, is here again. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Just encourage people to spend more? Well, it, it's Milton Friedman's uh, explanation for where economic activity comes from, basically saying the amount of money times how often it turns over gives you the total monetary value of output in an economy in any one year. And yes, it is a, certainly a factor. If you have a dollar, this is a classic little joke you may have heard about an American turning up in an Italian town and leaving $500 as a deposit for a room and then going off on the the uh, the uh, hotel uh, clerk uses it to pay his prostitute bill and the prostitute uses it to pay a rent bill and the <laughs> landlord uses it to pay his food bill and then he uh, the, and then the uh, the, the, the guy with the food goes back and pays his hotel bill and then the American turns up and decides he's not going to use the money anyway and goes to a different town and they say, how does it actually happen? Well, it makes plenty of sense because you have an extremely high volume of turnover of money, uh, which manages to enable all those financial transactions to occur in, in one go. So that joke does have a, a sensible interpretation. So, so the argument is he helped the economy of that town so much and he didn't spend a dollar. That's right, because <laughs> if he injected the money in, it got spent very rapidly, he took the money back out again, but in the meantime, it had turned over four times and uh, generating a $2,000 worth of economic activity while he was uh, off deciding which town to sleep in that night. Right. So that's that's a, a classic little joke that actually makes plenty of sense. The trouble is the joke's on us if it's true, because if you look at the velocity of money, and this is going on American data, it was turning over roughly twice uh, twice every year. So if you had, say, a trillion dollars of, uh, of money in the economy back in you know 2000, then it would turn over and generate two trillion dollars worth of GDP in that one year. You fast forward to where we are now, and there's the amount, the amount of money in the economy that says 15 trillion, it only turns over once. Right. So we've had a dramatic slowdown of the rate of turnover of money. But the, the weakness in the argument that applies both to uh, looking at just in those terms today and also Milton Friedman's argument, it ignores the growth in the money supply. And this is where the vast majority of increase in demand comes from, because the money supply is created by banks lending. When they create lending, that's change in the money supply. And the total demand in the economy is not just the turnover of existing money, it's the turnover of existing money plus the rate of change of money. And that's what Milton left out of his thinking. So, so, so is one counterbalancing the other then? Are we say, No, one is sinking the other. Right. This is why we're having a problem right now, because when you have, if you, had, if you had just a fixed amount of money in the economy and absolutely no debt, 
and no change in the amount of money, then it would be possible for it to turn over more and more rapidly as time goes on. If you if you wanted to produce more output, or you might have a falling price level. So that fixed amount of money with a falling price level could generate a larger amount of physical GDP, even though the amount of money wasn't changing. Or you could have an you know, increase in the velocity, meaning more monetary value and more output and all these usual uh, factors you see in textbooks. But what it leaves out is that money changes the main source of change in the amount of money in the economy is new debt being issued by banks because when banks issue a loan they they record a loan on the asset side of their book they record money as, a, as an increase in your deposit account on the liability side so the increase in money goes with an increase in debt now what's been happening over the last 60 years in america and uh, more rapidly elsewhere is that the increase in the money supply driven by an increase in debt has been enormous that stimulated demand while the debt was growing but you get to the stage where people are now carrying whereas back in the 1950s let's say the level of debt was about 50 percent of gdp so the amount of debt outstanding was one half of one year's gdp now it's closer to twice one year's gdp and in that situation people think oh dear i'm carrying a lot of debt right now i better um, save some money and uh, and use that to pay my debt down in the future and what they really do by saving is they simply saving cannot change the amount of money in existence what it does is slow down the rate of turnover right. and it's what we've been seeing happening since 1980 a dramatic slowdown of the rate of turnover of money right so uh, what you're saying is then that we've got a, a, an increase in uh, in debt that's increased the circulation or the the amount of money that's that's out there uh, to be spent and uh, we're hanging on to that that's why that's why we've got this low turnover of money because there's so much more money around if the supply was actually fiat money, like governments creating the money and, and turning up in our accounts so we could spend it willy-nilly and wouldn't worry about the debt load. But I've actually just loaded the figures since we started talking, mate. And if I go back to 1981, uh, the velocity of what's called MZM, which stands for money of zero maturity, in other words, stuff that you can instantly turn into to cash, uh, that was the peaked in the second quarter of 1980, the first quarter of 1981 at 3.5 roughly 3.55 so if you had one dollar uh, in money in existence that generated three dollars and fifty cents worth of gdp that particular year 1981 come forward to now and in the quarter three of 2016 which is roughly where we are now that one dollar generates one dollar and 29 cents worth of gdp wow so there's been that substantial slowdown now as they said it in the other side if you go back to 1960s um the rate of turnover that money was 1.8 so it actually rose dramatically and peaked up in 1981 has been falling ever since so the in that sense the the effectiveness of a single dollars rough more than actually fallen by roughly 60 70 percent since 1980 so isn't so isn't it in our interest isn't it good sound economic theory uh applied by government to say well debt is bad we don't want an expanding money supply that's driven by debt we want to see an expanding money supply driven by the velocity of money we've got to try and find ways to get people not to uh fund their lifestyle through debt we just want them Mm. to, to to spend their money more quickly and if they're going to do that isn't the sensible thing to say well um you know let's think encourage you not to save let's make sure
sure there's low interest rates. Let's make sure that, you know, there's there's really no point in hanging on to money. Just get it out there and use it on stuff. Well, that's that's the argument that people are putting forward and saying if you have a low rate of interest and actually like a negative rate of interest on deposit accounts, and this is one of the fantasy areas that people like Rogoff are, uh, are pushing us towards, negative interest rates, not just on the reserve accounts that private banks have at the central bank. Right. Uh, we're like Switzerland is charging minus 0.75 on excess reserves held at the central bank for the banks themselves but it would get money it would get money moving wouldn't it no (laughs) this is the problem because uh if if what is right if you were if you had an infinite life yes i'll let that sink in if you lived infinitely and didn't need, and you're therefore going to work for an infinite length of time and therefore would never need to save for this thing called retirement that only happens if you have a finite lifespan, then negative interest rates on the money you currently have would encourage you to spend the stuff rather than keeping it in your accounts. Yeah. And in fact, we actually come back to a sensible part of this back with the, with the ideas of a guy called Gazelle back in the 1930s, which were implemented in Austrian towns with a particular form of a parallel currency called script money. Um, but in the modern day, if you actually have negative interest rates and you have a finite life and you're going to retire at some point and you need therefore to put money aside for your retirement whether you're doing it individually yourself whether you're relying upon a pension fund to save that money for you when you start getting negative yields on 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 your deposit accounts and very very low yields on bonds as well of course then that means if you want to save money for your retirement you need to save more money so people consequently with negative interest rates applying right now and knowing they've got to save for their own retirement, the impact of the negative interest rate is to mean, well, I can't save, you know, I can't, I can't rely upon compound interest to save me. I've got to save more in my money now. So the negative rates actually end up, or low, low rate rates of interest, actually end up encouraging people to save more money and spend less. Right. So it backfires on conventional economics. So, I mean, you'd agree, though, the idea of, you know, if we, uh, I mean, you've talked yourself that, uh, it it doesn't make it's it's not possible really to extend the money supply for the reserve bank uh, to to uh, apply quantitative easing in the way that they're doing it it doesn't work so they can't ex- extend the money supply that way so they can't get growth in the economy by that means so isn't it a better way to say well okay let's just get people to spend what they do have quicker and if it's not through interest rates how do we do that <laughs> the only way you can do it successfully is to get rid of private debt Mm. Because if you eliminated the private debt and people therefore didn't have to think about saving money to pay their debt down in the future or uh, with low rates thinking I've I've got to... um uh, low rates might mean I'm paying a lower rate on my mortgage, but I've still got to pay the thing off by the time I retire. Uh, that is an encouragement with a high level of private debt to save more money to try to pay that debt down. If you got rid of the debt, then people wouldn't have that pressure anymore and they might consequently think, well, okay, with getting a low yield, I might as well spend the money now rather than keeping it for later. So it's forgetting about the role of private debt yet again, which is the main reason why this particular trick won't work. Right. Okay. Seems like a a worn record, doesn't it? But it always goes back. Unfortunately. It always goes back to it. I'm getting bored by myself. I hope the public isn't quite getting so bored, but it's, it's because it's ignored by the mainstream completely that I've got to hammer about the damn thing all the time. So M MV equals PY, which is what we're talking about. That's the economic yeah. theory, isn't it? Money velocity uh, equals prices and nominal GDP. That is too, one. That's yeah. too simplistic because it, because uh, again, it, leaves, it, it yeah, ignores it, debt. It leaves out the change in money. So the actual correct equation is uh, P times Y, which is you know, price level times, times turnover of physical goods plus net capital gains. 
which is an important part of the way we actually use money to speculate on asset prices, is equal to M times V plus the change in money, which is either DMDT or DDDT. And that's that's particular, and I've done the mathematics to derive that equation directly as well. But that's that's saying that your Milton's equation is wrong on two sides. On one side, it ignores the way in which we use money to speculate on assets, which is a huge part of where change in the money supply is actually directed. And on the other side, it ignores that it isn't just the turnover of existing money that provides demand. It's also the growth of new money, which goes directly into demand for both goods and services and assets. And that's the, um, that's the uh, one of the, I, I'd like to say the key weakness of neoclassical economics, but there are too many weaknesses to count. So it's one of the important weaknesses of mainstreaming thinking to leave out the role of creation of new money and creating both demand and debt and debt right but can't we use it to try and uh, reduce that debt so if, if we've got confidence that the economy is doing well and we're prepared to spend more so the the economy starts to to grow yeah. can't we uh, can't that in in itself uh, help us to reduce that debt we, we maybe slowly and you know incrementally but uh, isn't that another way forwards that would be appealing, but the thing is to pay debt down, uh, you've got to actually use your money to pay the debt down. So if you have an enormous rate of turnover of money, you're making a huge amount of money in profit, then you pay that money, you use that money to pay some of your debt down. Each time you're paying it down, it's a one-for-one -one reduction in the amount of money in existence. If you pay down your debt by a, a billion dollars out of a trillion dollars worth of debt in an economy, that is actually a billion dollars worth of money which disappears. Okay, because again, when, when a bank creates money by creating debt, there's a change in the assets on one side, a positive change in the assets, and a positive change in the liabilities on the other side. If you have somebody paying their debt down, there's a negative change in the liabilities, they fall, and a negative change in the assets of the same scale. So the trouble is with a, with a, with a totally debt-based money supply, you can't get rid of the debt because if you get rid of the debt, you eliminate the money as well. So in that, this is why we need it. We need, we need a mixed system of both credit and fiat money. So in that in that example you gave of that uh, that small town in Italy, I think it was. Mm -hmm. uh, if um, uh, if I was the the hotel keeper who took the money and then pay, maybe I owed the prostitute. Uh, well, of course, that would never happen in real life. <laughs> but I, I the, the prostitute. I won't tell your wife. Yeah. <laughs> I had a debt with the prostitute, and I used that money to pay off my debt, and then that prostitute used that money to pay off her debt, and it is a she. I, I, I can, I can give you reveal that much, uh, and that carried on. We're all progressively paying off debts, isn't that? Yeah, but the trouble happy? is, no. This, this is one. I, mean, I have to use a bit of a twist here. That is man to woman debt. Uh, <laughs> what what um, what Irving Fisher once referred as man to man debt. Since you said you're not gay, then I've got to be man to woman debt. Um, but that is a debt where if you pay the debt down, the person you pay the debt to has an increase in their spending power, and this is the the flaw in the logic when you put it in a complete banking system because when you pay another individual the debt that you owe them then your amount of money goes down their amount of money goes up there's no change in the aggregate liability of the banking sector to the economy therefore there's no change right. in your total amount of money just changes who owns it but if you pay a bank you pay the bank back then you reduce the liabilities of the bank which reduces the amount of money in circulation you reduce the amount of debt 
equivalently, but you've actually reduced the amount of money in circulation. And that's the big difference between what Irving Fisher used to call a man-to-man debt, which you've just now labelled a man-to-woman debt, uh, and, and, the, and the man-to-banking system debt, which is the key one we get trapped by. It's the bank debt that, gets, that brings this whole thing unstuck. Right. So there's nothing we can take out from this then. There's nothing in this theory, nothing we can do to say we can inc- we can effectively make ourselves wealthier by increasing the money supply, either by increasing the amount, amount of money, which we, we believe is difficult to, done, to do and it happens anyway yeah. with no control from the government or increasing the velocity just can't be done. Well, increasing the velocity on its own would work because if you had, if you have a, a debt-to-GDP ratio of 100% and you've got money sending over twice every year, then if you could double that rate of velocity, you'd reduce your debt ratio by, by 50%. You'd go from a, you know, like a, if, if, if you had a, a trillion dollars in debt and a trillion dollars in, in GDP and your money was sending over once per annum, then you have a trillion dollars of money in circulation as well. Now, if you could double the rate of that circulation of that money, you would have two trillion dollars in GDP and still only one trillion dollars in debt. So you could reduce it by increasing the velocity of circulation. And this is one reason Keynes talked about what he called the widow's cruise, that if the, the, if the, uh, the widow spends her money more rapidly, it generates more income, not more money. There's a big difference between the two. Money is a stock. Income is the turnover of that stock per unit of time. So if you could double the rate of turnover of money, you would halve the debt-to-GDP ratio. The trouble is that when people get in more debt, rather than spending more rapidly, they spend more slowly, and that actually exacerbates the problem. Right. But that's psychology, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're doing um, that because psycholo- psychology... Because yeah. psychology, we've got that debt. If we just said to everybody, look, we've, we're all holding debt. Uh, we have to get our, out of it. Don't worry about it now. Just spend money. And if you spend it quickly, we'll, we'll get out of this problem. It's, it is partly psychology, but it's also the classic psychology of, of what actually works being the inverse of your gut reaction. This We, we come back to a bit of talking about the sure. Kahneman idea about fast versus slow brain system. But have, you, have, you ever been, have you ever had it been involved in a skid of a car? No, I'm you, glad to say. No, I, I drive too yeah. sensibly. Okay, I didn't once. I had a girlfriend who was a very good driver on on, uh, on dirt roads, and she was fanging along the road. You know, fang from Fangio, of course. We're talking to the great uh, South American racing driver of the 1950s. But she was blasting along the road, so I decided to copy her, and she was much better than me as a driver. And she said, we're going to skid. And she was dead right. We started to skid. Now, I had no idea of what to do. I turned further into the skid on this rough dirt road. And, of course, we managed to continue drifting. That's how I continued going out back. And we just managed to stop before we hit a telegraph pole. Um, so I did the wrong thing because yeah. my brain turned into the skid. Yes. Now, she was being a better driver. She would have turned I, – I turned in the direction I wanted to go. She would have turned the wheel in the direction of the skid and controlled the car. Right, for sure, which and I know, which I know is what you're supposed to do. Issue. So, okay, but, yeah. I mean, but as you say, it's counterintuitive. So similarly, if mm. we did act counterintuitively and said, oh, my God, I've got so much debt, but I'm just going to spend my way out of it. And everyone yeah. else did the same. And we insp- increased the velocity of money. Would we reduce debt? Yes, we would not reduce the debt. We'd reduce the debt to GDP ratio. Yes, right. Which is that's a- what we won't do. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it's that classic case of, of, of collective behavior working, individual behavior being self-defeating. But we'll always fall back into the individual because that's the thing we think about in these situations. So it's one of those classic instances where thinking in an individual fashion actually undermines our individual viability.
Right. But if we did all do it, uh, I don't know how you do it or how you'd encourage people or whether there's government policy to do it. Uh, it would help uh, debt to GDP ratio. It would be positive would. for everybody. So how do we do it is the question, I guess. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we simply won't. Uh, and that's why the only solution at a collective is this thing where individual behavior is actually self-defeating. So... And, and you have to say, we've got to think in a collective sense and behave collectively, everybody. Let's all behave collectively. Well, the best way to behave collectively is say, well, maybe we should just collectively decide to reduce the level of debt in the first place. And we all, therefore, get more relaxed and we'll spend more rapidly and get a double bonus out of it. Because we would actually, if we had, if we could go back to the debt burden we had in the 1950s or even in the 1980s, rather than what we have now, people would be so much easier about their financial commitments that they could spend more easily. And we would both have a reduction in the level of debt and an increase in the turnover of the amount of money and get a double whammy out of it. Mm, yeah. It is all fear, isn't it? It's fear of how much debt we're carrying that we were too, yeah. too petrified. All right. Okay. It seemed like a good theory. Uh, but the theory is useless is basically what you're saying. Fundamentally. I mean, any, any neoclassical theories, I mean, my little argument to my students is to say anything neoclassical theory advises, do the opposite, you're likely to be successful. Right. Okay, well, let's demolish another one of those theories next time. We'll look at Ricardo and the uh, the theory of free trade. I know your thoughts on that already. Uh, we'll talk about that next time. For the moment, though, Steve, thank you very much for your time. Okay, mate. Let's do it. Yeah, the idea of free trade, of course, very relevant today as uh, Britain decides that it doesn't want to be part of the uh, EU free trading bloc. Well, actually, it would like to be part of it, but it doesn't want the free movement of people. Uh, you can't have the uh, chicken and the egg, of course. Uh, so is it a bad thing that we are getting out of uh, the European free trade zone? Uh, or is the whole idea of free trade wrong? Did Ricardo get it wrong? We'll talk about that next time on Debunking Economics. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks very much. We'll see you then. 